We are continuing our series uh, in 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm titling today's message, Maturing in Community, which ties in very nicely with our Wednesday night discussion we've been having on um, casting vision for community and what that looks like in our lives. Now listen, when it comes to maturity, it's difficult to convince someone who's immature that they are in fact immature, right? The immature person always thinks they are mature. Part of immaturity is thinking that you are mature, right? Uh, This is true of the Corinthian church. They are a people that think they are mature spiritually, but Paul's going to tell them that they're not as far along as they think they are. Now, he's not saying they're unbelievers because he does call them brothers and sisters in this book, but they're acting like people who aren't really saved, at least in their behavior and lifestyle. Now, in every area of our lives... We expect people to grow up and to mature. We expect that emotionally. We expect that mentally. We expect that physically. And if they don't, we see it as a major problem, don't we? I think of a story many, many years ago. Most of you guys know my daughter, Sienna, who's not in here. She's in junior high, but she's at Camp Tejas right now, so I can talk about her behind her back. Um, But she was about two years old, and... And she was, you know, she was walking, of course, and she would, you know, kids pick up the craziest things and just put random items in their mouths, right? And so when, you're, when your kids look really small, you just are careful and looking after, uh, making sure they don't put crazy things in their mouth, you know, razor blades, I mean, stuff that could really hurt them. And this one time, I look at her, and she's on the floor kind of crawling around, and, um, and I look at her, and she has this look on her face. And I know there's something about her mouth that looks off. And I'm like, what's, she has something in her mouth. And I'm, I'm like, what is in her mouth? And so I walk over to her. She's doing the look like this. She's like, and I'm like, what does she have in her mouth? And I, and I kind of squeeze her little cheeks to open up her mouth. No lie. And out crawls a massive cockroach. Yes. I screamed like a little girl, and I was so horrified. We, we named the cockroach Jonah, just if you see the analogy, but, um, but it was disgusting in every way. I think I killed the cockroach, and I was like, I think I forgot all the cleaning products that I used to clean her mouth out, like hydrogen peroxide, dish soap, um, laundry detergent. I kind of lost count of all the things that I was trying to, like, clean her mouth out. And um, it was bad, just really awful, right? Like one of the worst things you could possibly do. So listen, now, we might expect something like that from a two-year-old. Maybe, not most two-year-olds, but the ones that belong to me, oh, yes, yes. Uh, maybe a two-year-old, you expect that from a two-year-old. But listen, she turns 13 this month. If we saw her doing that at her 13th birthday party, we'd have major concerns, right? Major concerns. Because we expect people to grow immature in every aspect of their lives, and we expect them to grow out of certain behaviors. And so Paul says the same thing should happen spiritually. We should expect ourselves and others to grow up and mature, but the Corinthians aren't really on that trajectory just yet. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll start in verses 1 through 4 where it says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? So Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, he calls them what? He calls them infants in Christ. He's saying, you guys are, y'all are kind of like babies, the Corinthian church. Now, the word for infant here is where we get the word diaper, if you look at some of the root words of that. And uh, he says, because, because you were so immature, I had to feed you with milk and not solid food just yet. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he, it's because he's having to address all these really basic issues with this church. Because in this church, people are, um, when they have communion feasts, they're getting drunk off the communion wine. Uh, people are living in obvious sexual sin. Um, there's also disunity and division. We've talked about that already in the series. And, and so Paul is addressing some of the basic things with this church. And that would be like the milk, the basic things. I've got to address the basic things with you, things you should already know with how long you've been a Christian. And Paul is saying, you know, why are these things, these problems, your biggest issues as a church? I mean, every church has issues and problems, but the real issue is what kind of problems? So, so they can't even get past the basics, like, yeah, you shouldn't go down to the, the, the temple to Aphrodite and engage with prostitutes, something that should be basic for them, and they can't even get that right just yet. And, and so Paul says, I want to give you solid food. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's saying he'd rather help them solve issues like, you know, how do we disciple all these new believers that are coming to, a, to our church? How do we help the poor and navigate that? How do we help people in the church nurture and grow spiritually? How do we help people utilize their spiritual gifts? That's the problems that a mature church should be having, but that's not the issues they're experiencing there in Corinth. So Paul's saying, I, I want to give you the meat, but you're still spitting up the milk. And he'd rather help them solve the, the good problems that a church can have. So this church, they think they're mature, but their lives exhibit immaturity. You know, um, I think back several, many years ago now, probably over 10 years ago, there was a, uh, at a senior class of guys, and it was a really strange time in our church because, in the youth group, because um, I had this massive class of senior guys. And about half of them were like serious Christ followers, and the other half just wanted to kind of goof around all the time. And normally, by the time they get to be seniors, that kind of person just usually checks out a church, which I don't prefer that. But this particular class of guys, that's not what happened. They, they stayed. They did impact. They did all the things. Mission trips were a part of Wednesdays and Sundays. But, man, Wednesday nights were difficult with this group of guys. I pulled aside about half the guys and said, hey, you know, I'm not trying to, like, you know, be the iron fist here, but y'all are seniors, and your leaders are telling me that they can't even have a conversation around the Bible for more than five minutes with you. So, like, what's going on? Help me understand. And the guys kind of shared some things, and, and the, the theme I heard, though, from all six or seven of them was this. We just already know all this stuff. There's nothing new y'all are telling to us on Wednesdays. And so I took those guys aside for a few weeks and tried to have, like, a, a different discussion with them for a few weeks there um, on Wednesday nights. But listen, there's a lot of pride in that statement. We already know all this stuff. And then months later... I think it was after they graduate, I find out how many of them were living, okay? It was, you know, pretty obvious. And, um, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot of pride in the statement, you know, I already know all this stuff. I've already arrived. Listen, the immature person 
always thinks they're mature. The immature person thinks they've already arrived at the destination. And that's not the case uh, here with this church. So, so one of the greatest signs of immaturity is believing the Christian life is all about just acquiring knowledge and information. And that's all it is. And that's what these guys, their, their, their main issue was that, is that we think of the Christian life as just, I attain this information and that's it. No, it's about living it out. And if you're not applying it to your life, then you can't say that you're mature in how, in how you're living out your spiritual life. In verses uh, 3 and 4, Paul identifies why he calls them immature. And he says it's this, two things. There's jealousy and strife among you. Now, you might think of those things as, you know, what's the big deal? We don't think of jealousy and strife as being like, oh, that's the varsity sins. We think of those as maybe down here. But if you look over in Galatians chapter 5, Paul includes those two sins alongside idolatry, sorcery, sexual immorality. All sin, in some sense, is the same, right? Their jealousy and infighting are, are centered on human leaders with whom they identify. Now listen, is it wrong to appreciate the gifts of someone like a leader or a preacher? No. It's not wrong to do that. But we shouldn't turn it into like a divisive competition, you know, propping up one person over someone else and demeaning somebody else. And you know, the people in Corinth, they should be saying things like, whenever Apollos would speak, they should have said things like, you know what I appreciate about Apollos when he speaks God's word? This is what I appreciate so much about Apollos and how he shares the word of God. And you know what, whenever Paul stands up there and shares God's word, Here's what I feel about Paul when Paul speaks the words of God. Because listen, every person that speaks or leads, uh, speaks to you or leads you spiritually, they're going to do it a little bit differently. And it's okay for you to appreciate what each person brings to the table. The problem arises whenever we start to divide and say, no, I like this person better. And we, we hold up one person over someone else and we demean somebody. That's where we cross over the line into sin. That's what's happening here in the church in Corinth. So we, we tend to latch on to certain leaders or teachers, and we think they're the only person that can, that can help us grow, and everyone else is second class. You know, um, I once heard a pastor named, named David Platt say this. He said, you know, something in my theology is wrong, and I just don't know yet what it is. It's a nice way of saying, look, don't follow me too closely. And I'll say that is true for me as one of your pastors and for your leaders. Listen, yeah, follow us as we follow Christ, but don't think that we're never wrong. Don't think we never make mistakes. Don't think that we're never off base. Because when you start to hold us up and say, you know, if, if you say, if you find someone out there, even in like podcast land, and you say, I only listen to this person or I only read this person's books, and you, you can't find anything you disagree with that person about, you've now held that person, I think, up too highly. Because no one is right about everything. And we don't turn these things into a popularity contest. Look at verse 5 as we go through the chapter. It says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
Now, at this point in the letter, the Corinthians might be asking the question, okay, if we're not supposed to divide over human leadership, then how are we supposed to view people like Paul and Apollos in our lives? How should we see them? How should we view them? And Paul's answer is that they should be viewed like farmers. That's how you should view them. You know, I like to tell people um, that if people say here in Texas, they say, hey, where are you from? I like to, I like to say I'm from close to Washington, D.C., because it sounds cooler. You know, it's a bigger city, and everyone knows where that is. But the reality is I grew up like an hour from the city, and I grew up in the sticks in the middle of nowhere. And, and it's a real nondescript town I grew up in. And, um, and here's the reality. I grew up on a farm, essentially. And my grandfather was a farmer, and we lived just down the road from him. And the farming life is very simple. It's not impressive. It's not flashy. There is hard work. There's dedication. Uh, my grandfather, no lie, he wore the same outfit every single day. He had seven of them. All looked the same. And it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Looked the exact same, every single outfit. And that's all he needed. That was, that was his wardrobe for the entire time that I knew him when he was alive. He's a very simple person. And every year he would do the work of like, you know, tilling up the field and, and planting the crops. And, and he would just pray for rain. He'd pray for it to rain. He's at the mercy of the elements all the time. Now imagine if after a good harvest one year, you know, imagine if after a really good harvest one year that, that he begins like talking trash to like another farmer and says like, you see that crop I planted? You see how awesome it was? Farmers don't do that. You know why? Because they know they're at the mercy of the elements. They know that all they did was they put the seed in the ground, and they gave it some fertilizer. They watered it, and they just prayed. They just prayed for God to cause the growth. And that's what Paul says. That's what Paul says being a ministry leader is like. It is someone who just, all we can do is just plant the seed and maybe water it, but recognize that God causes the miracle of growth. And I can't create that. Your leaders can't, can't create that in you. All we can do is, is, is try to create the environment where it's, it's likely to happen, but then God has to do the work. And, and so therefore, we can't take credit for whatever happens in and through you because it's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So whenever we, me or your leaders, prepare a sermon, a Bible study, or lead a discussion, it's like just simply putting the seed in the ground or pouring water on that seed, and God's the one that causes the growth for each one of us. Now, I'm not saying this next story to, to prop myself up in any way, but I received a text last week from a student that I had in Arlington over 20 years ago. And we've kept in touch some over the years, and he's come in, into Temple to have lunch occasionally with me. And uh, he's one of the only people that will still contact me from back in that era of my life. And, um, and, and listen, this was a guy that when he was in high school, I found him kind of frustrating sometimes. Like he would really kind of push the envelope when he was not always the nicest guy to his peers. And we had some hard, challenging discussions when he was in high school. But he recently last week wrote this to me in a text. He said he was leading some men's group at his church that, that weekend. And he said... I facilitated the discussion with a men's group this morning, and we talked about the youth decline in Christianity, and I began sharing about how important your role was in my life and keeping me at church after high school. 
I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate your life calling and thank you for all that you do. And we had this text exchange back and forth after that conversation. Listen, it's so encouraging to hear him say that. But listen, all I am, all I was, was a servant. All I was was a servant to him. I was just planting seeds and watering. That was it. I've not been a part of a spiritual growth for over 20 years, but this guy named John, he had the right perspective about human leadership because, you know, what if I moved away from there and, and he said, you know, no one, nobody was as good as Dave in my life. No one taught me like Dave did. No one planted or watered like Dave. And now that Dave's gone, I'm just going to check out and bail on the church. What if he said that? That's not what he said because he recognized that we're pointing him to Jesus that Jesus has to be his foundation. It wasn't about me. Now listen, it is okay to appreciate the role that someone plays in your life, but a truly good leader points you to Jesus and not to themselves. And so pastors and leaders have to be more like farmers and less like what you see sometimes in the world today and less like rock stars. Our role is to be a servant. Now listen, I don't mean to downplay the importance of planting and watering, because if the farmer doesn't plant and water, then nothing's going to happen, right? You know, God's allowed us as leaders to participate in the work, and it matters how we do the work. We want to do the work well. We're not saying leadership doesn't matter or or gifting doesn't matter. I mean, elsewhere, Paul's going to write about spiritual gifts. Everyone's gifted differently, and that should be accounted for when someone steps into some, some kind of a position. If someone's not gifted at mercy, They probably shouldn't be in roles that require that. If someone's not gifted at teaching, then they probably shouldn't be in that role. But Paul's overarching message is don't get hung up on who delivers the message, but focus on who gives the growth, which is God. So in the first, these first few verses, Paul is using a farming analogy to describe spiritual growth. But in the next few verses, in verse 9, he switches word pictures to architecture. Remember, Corinth is a booming city, so it might be that maybe Paul's writing the words and, he's, and he realizes, maybe he thinks to himself, you know, maybe farming may not work as well in this prosperous city as an analogy. So now he moves to something that might work well, which is a building analogy. So look down at uh, verse 10. And we're going to see different ideas on community here. So the first idea is community construction. What must it be built upon? for it to last. Look at verse 10, and we'll we'll skip down to verse 16 as well. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, we often say things like, the church isn't a building, and that's true. But Paul says, Right here, the church is a building. It's just not the kind that we think of. It's a spiritual building. It's this analogy he uses. It's a spiritual building that's been built up by God. And Paul says he laid a foundation for this church, but the foundation wasn't Paul. Make no mistake. The foundation wasn't Paul himself. The foundation was Jesus. Paul's personality or his teaching ability could not be the foundation. It's going to collapse after a few years but he lays the foundation. The foundation is Jesus. And listen, if we're going to have genuine community with one another, the foundation has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. 
So Paul lays this foundation, but now someone else is building on it. Of course, people like Apollos and others were building on it as well. So Paul plants, and someone else is watering. Paul lays a foundation, and someone else is building on that foundation. And it's easy for us to think that the church is just built on certain people. And we know that, that, that at times leaders, we as leaders, we can make it all about ourselves. And, but sometimes it goes the other way around where, where the people make it all about the leaders as well, even when the leaders don't intend for that to happen. Do you know that there are only, I did this math this morning when I was preparing this talk. Do you know that at this church, I've been here for almost 20 years, there are only two people that are currently on our pastoral staff that were here when I got here. That's a pretty low number, right? But the, the, the people have changed. The leaders have changed. Um, when it comes to the leadership team in the Outback, the high school, junior high team, there's no one here now that was here when I got here 20 years ago. Listen, all of us, including me, we're expendable. We're all, sorry to be dark and depressing, we're all moving towards dying one day. And, and we're all going to head that direction physically. But listen, it, this isn't built on any one person. But it continues because the foundation has to be Jesus. When I was in high school, it was difficult for me to imagine my spiritual life without my youth pastor. Or when I was in college, it was really hard for me to imagine life without the pastor who mentored me. But listen, many of you are making strong connections right now with our team, which is great, with people in this room. That is good and right, but be careful not to make that person your foundation. And I think at times students can struggle leaving high school because they, you know, they go to another church and they just can't imagine life without that one leader that they had that they just loved. You know, how am I going to grow without that person? Listen, if Jesus is really your foundation, you can make that transition. You can go somewhere else and say, hey, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to step in and serve because Christ is my foundation not some person back in my hometown. And if Christ is your foundation, you can withstand, listen, you can withstand some of the dysfunction that you will definitely see in the church. If you're tempted to bail on the church, then my question for us is, who's your foundation? Who's your foundation? Is it other people or is it, is it Jesus? And then the next idea here is, is we see as community demolition in verse 12. It says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then skip to verse 17 where it says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, there's a lot we can get into that I don't have time to get into in verses 12 to 15, so I'm not going to cover all of that. But this can sound complicated, but it's actually fairly simple because we can build the church on valuable things like Jesus, the pure gospel, the message of the cross. That'd be things like gold, silver, costly stones, things that, things that are going to last or we can build a church on cheap things like a leader's personality, false doctrine, consumerism. That would be wood, hay, 
and stubble. If you've got a mixture of wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, costly stones, and you light it on fire, which of those are going to burn up? It's going to be the, the wood, hay, and stubble. And if you light a, a fire to that mixture of things, the wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn up for sure. So the fire mentioned here, this could be a, a shadow reference to the fire of ultimate judgment. But we also know here there's also fire associated with the return of Christ. Because one, in, in verses 12 to 15, it talks about that person is saved, but maybe their works have kind of burned up, so to speak, because they didn't really base the ministry on the right things. But the person might still be a Christian, as described in verse 15. But in verse 17, it seems to talk more about future judgment for someone who is not a believer. Again, can't really get into all the weeds with this. But the return of Christ is often associated with, with fire. And when Jesus returns, he's going to find some churches built on the right things and some built on the wrong things. And when he comes back, he's going to find churches that, some churches that cater to people's immaturity and some churches that spur people toward maturity. I have a long quote for us to read. And I apologize in advance for how long it is, but I wanted to put it up there on the screen. Paul is basically saying that if an individual turns on his community, he is really turning on himself, and it is conceptually irrational to do. We cannot expect someone to thrive in isolation. We must be part of the building to receive the benefits of the foundation. One brick cannot say to another brick, I don't really like being cl so close to you. It's making me uncomfortable. The building will only stand because they stick together. They must be unified, meshing, and interdependent. Being a rugged individualist will only lead to self-cannibalization. In other words, any push for independence from the community is really a push towards one's, one's own demise. There's a lot in there, but I'm going to let it kind of sit on us for a moment. And I want you to look down now at, at verse 18. This is community restoration. How is community restored? Well, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Listen, we have a choice to make. We can be one who destroys community or one who helps restore it. One of the biggest issues that keeps us from restoring community, it's mentioned in verse 18, it's self-deception. You, you know, we think we're just above it all. Like, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not as immature as those people. I'm more mature than they are. And we start keeping score like that, and we want to check out of church and check out of community because we think we're above other people, or we think that we're just too mature to be part of a group that, where there's dysfunction or turmoil. I mentioned this, I think, last couple Wednesdays ago. Mature people can handle the immaturity of others. Usually whenever we want to bail, there's a lot of self-deception going on, like I'm not part of the problem and, and others are the problem, not me. There's lots of human wisdom going on whenever we want to bail in the church. And Paul says, if you, want to be, if you want to be wise, become a fool. Be someone who doesn't sell out to worldly wisdom, doesn't sell your soul to false foundations. And he says, at the end here, he says, all things are yours. You know, you want Paul, 
You already have him. You want Apollos? Well, you have Apollos as well. He's the gift to the church. How about Peter? You want Peter? You already have Peter. And these men are gifts to the church, is what Paul is saying. But they can't replace Jesus as the foundation. So Paul says that the church is like this spiritual building being built up by God. It's his possession. It doesn't belong to any one preacher, any one person, teacher or leader. And you know, in Corinth, some of the buildings they found in Corinth, they had these inscriptions on them. And sometimes they would uh, maybe say the name of a person, or it may have some other kind of inscription on there to describing what the building was for. But they find these inscriptions in buildings there in the, in the city ruins of Corinth. And again, some describe what the building was. Some may have people's names. And, and you might, like you might see today in certain buildings uh, here. But Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, my name is not on your building. Apollos' name is not on your building. God's name is the name that should be on the building because you belong to him. And so listen, if we can understand that all of this belongs to him and not to any one person or leader, I think it will help us navigate and get us through those times where you and I want to bail on the church and this community. Um, You guys are going to go to your breakouts. And uh, so if you don't know where to go, uh, freshman girls head to the corner over there, sophomore girls over here, and then